0: Good morning, my name is Connor Haas and I'm super thankful to be with you. I I come from a far land, it's the other side of the 55 freeway. So um, I am from a a church just down the road, Grace Church of Orange, and I bring greetings uh, from Pastor Mike there and all the team and the believers and uh, just was sharing with the team this morning. It's so encouraging to be in a different church and be reminded, wow, there's other people out there who love Jesus too. And they're following him, and they're being shaped by his word. So I'm thankful to be uh, with you. I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to the book of 1 Timothy. And we will be looking this morning at just one verse in 1 Timothy chapter 3, looking at verse 16. And, and I'm so sorry, is it Tim or Jim? Yeah. Jim. So Jim just read this for us. Uh, and if you will with me, I want to read it again, and then just pray for the Lord's help this morning, and then we are going to get into one of the greatest New Testament hymns, so Pastor Craig tells me we've been doing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs this summer here, and so this is uh, one of the greatest New Testament hymns, so look with me at chapter 3, and we'll read from verse 14. Paul says, and he's writing to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And then the verse that we're looking at this morning, he says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the world, taken up in glory. Let's pray together, and then we will look at this passage. Lord, we ask for your help now to see the glory of our Savior and your Son, the Lord Jesus. We pray that if there's anyone here as well this morning who hasn't yet seen his glory, that today might be the day for them. Lord, we love you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name, and hoping that he would be honored. Amen. So one of my favorite children's movies is the movie Up anyone seen that? St- story about a little boy who has a house and there's balloons and the house floats. And in the, in the movie, one of the main characters is a dog and the dog's name is Doug. And Doug has a pretty cool tool. It's a collar that lets him talk to his owner, Russell. and So throughout the movie, one of the running gags is that every time Doug is talking again and again and again, he's distracted by these squirrels that he thinks he sees. And so he'll be talking and, and going on, maybe he's mid-sentence, and then suddenly his head will jerk off screen, and he just says, squirrel, and then he comes back to the conversation. And ever since I first saw that, I thought, wow, Doug is Doug's like me, Doug's like me, and probably Doug's like you too. And by that, I just mean every one of us, is we're, we're distracted people. There's something inside every one of us that is just quick to, you know, we have our target and focus, but we're so quick to slide off to one side or the other and and probably nowhere is this more true in our lives than with respect to our spiritual life and walking with the Lord. If you've been a believer for a long time, then you know how how much there is in your heart that's prone to wander and you know that you want to follow Christ, you want to love him, but you watch as again and again you just get sidelined and distracted. And even if you're newer in the faith and if you've just trusted Christ recently, you still probably recognize, why is this why is this so hard for me? Why do I find myself so distracted? Just yesterday morning, I was having a terrible morning. You ever have a terrible morning? I was having a terrible morning. I was frustrated, I was angry, and then I hit my head on something. And that really did it. That just sent me over, and I was even more frustrated. And then I got in the car after, you know, I was, I was at church of all places. You can be mad at church. Uh, I was at church. I got in the car to drive away and started to pray and was just praying, Lord, how, how is it that in just such a quick turn I can go from wanting to follow you, honor you, have attitudes that glorify you, to being completely just distracted? And Now I'm frustrated. I'm mad. I'm all wrapped up in my own mind, frustrated that I just hit my head on something. How do I go astray so fast? And for you, you you know, you might know what it is for yourself. Maybe sometimes the distraction is more mundane. Maybe it's your favorite political talk show. Maybe it's the NFL starting up. Maybe it's TikTok, Instagram, mommy bloggers, food recipes on, you know, social media. I don't know what it is, but even these small things can distract us. And then there's the spiritual distractions. Maybe it's that you're the kind of person who loves to get your mind wrapped around doctrine but it's in a way where it just puffs up your head and it doesn't go to the heart. Or maybe you're the kind of person who loves the emotional side of things and you get so excited about these different things that make you feel a certain way, but it's all, you know, Christ is absent from it. There's no substance, no truth, no doctrine. So all of us are just like Doug, spiritually speaking, prone to go aside to any which way. We're like cars that are skidding on ice and always at any moment could swerve off the road. And the book of 1 Timothy, which Paul wrote to Timothy, who was a pastor in Ephesus, deals with a people who are distracted just like you and me. And if I could read you a few verses, I, I want to show you just how much this is on Paul's mind in the book of 1 Timothy. These people are in danger of being distracted away from Christ. He warns people, uh, or he warns Timothy about those who, this is verse one, uh, verse 4 of chapter 1, who devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather from the stewardship of God that is by faith. In chapter 4, verse 7, he tells Timothy have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, he rebukes people for having an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people. And in the letter's conclusion, he circles back once again to say, avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. situation in the church of Ephesus where Timothy pastored was that there were these people who had slipped in and were trying to divert the church's attention away from Jesus. They were trying to divert his attention to anything else except for Jesus. And so, Paul writes to a church that is under the attack of of Satan in the way that he always attacks us, and his ploy has been the same all the way through from then to now. It's to divert our attention away from Jesus. That's what he's after. It was true for them, and this morning, even now, Satan is at work to distract us collectively as a church from Jesus, and personally to distract you from Christ. And so, we need to see Paul's anecdote to this, and it comes throughout the letter in his, t- his, his encouragement to Timothy, if you want to keep people focused on the truth, you need to bring it to them again and again and again and again. You need to keep preaching to them the truth about Christ, and you need to live a godly life that supports the truth that you're preaching, and all of this comes to a head, like the, the tip of the spear is in verse 16 of chapter 3, which we're looking at this morning. It's the, it's the thematic and uh, kind of structural center of the book. And in it, Paul delivers to Timothy, knowing that he'll pass it along to the church, a hymn, a song about Jesus. And this song contains in six lines the truth of what the church believes about Jesus. And Paul says, if you want, Timothy, to not be pulled aside by all of these distractions, if you want to be... uh, pastoring these people so that they're faithful to Jesus, you need to remain fixed on Christ. That's the solution. Fixed on Christ. And so these verses, maybe our ears at first, they sound a little confusing, maybe a little complicated or distant, but actually this is just a song about Jesus. Just like the songs that we've been singing this morning. And so we want to look at the way that he introduces this this morning and then just start to walk through this song. Six lines, six truths about Christ. That's what we're after this morning. Are you good with that? With me? All right, so let's start by, before we get to the hymn, let's look at the way that Paul introduces this, because it highlights for us just how crucially foundational this hymn is. So, look at verse 16, and at the beginning, Paul introduces the hymn saying, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Okay, let's think about that for just a moment. We'll take it in two halves. So first, let's think about what does Paul mean when he says, great indeed, we confess. Uh, Great. In the Greek, the word is mega. That doesn't need much explanation. If you've ever been standing close to someone and they're yelling at you through a megaphone, you have an idea of what's going on here. Mega, great, big, loud, profound. That's what this confession is. And he says, we confess, which again in the Greek is just two words that mean the same and then to speak. And so he's saying, we all speak the same. We all say the same thing about this mystery. If you remember, remember in Acts chapter 19, Paul is in Ephesus, and a huge riot breaks out, and what are the people shouting again and again and again in the city of Ephesus? All these people who are whipped into a frenzy are are shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and they're going on like this for hours. Well, Timothy is pastoring the church in that city, Ephesus, and so maybe Paul has in mind, hey, there's all these other people who in the pagan, you know, temple worship Artemis by saying, Artemis is great, and Paul's saying the church's confession is, it's the mystery of godliness that's great. That's what's mega, big, profound, and what is the mystery of godliness? So think about this with me. First, he says the mystery. When I think mystery, I don't know what you think, but I think Hardy Boys, which I grew up reading, and I think Scooby-Doo. Anyone with me? I love me. Some Hardy Boys and Scooby-Doo. But that's actually not what Paul's getting at here. This kind of mystery isn't something like the game Clue or, or a murder mystery where you're trying to piece things together. When the New Testament uses the term mystery, what it's getting at is something that used to be hidden in the secret counsels of God, but has now been revealed in Jesus. Something that used to be hidden, but it's now been revealed in Jesus. And so he's saying there is a mystery that has become known to us in the coming of Jesus. And that's what this hymn is all going to be about. So we don't want to think that this mystery is something kind of obscure or veiled. And yet at the same time, as we start to walk through this hymn in just a minute, we're going to see the mystery is so great that even while we try to put our minds to it, we're going to walk away feeling like we just can't get there. We've barely scratched the surface. We've just taken a little plastic spoon and turned over like one, one little, you know, shovel's worth of dirt. Because, not, not because it's so complicated or obscure, but because Christ is so great. He's so great. And so as we look at this hymn in a moment, we're again and again just going to be left saying, Wow, Jesus, you're so great. I can't get my mind around this. And then finally, he says this is the mystery of godliness godliness. And godliness is exactly what it sounds like to us. This is godlikeness. This is real devotion, real piety. Um, Pretty simply said, he's saying this mystery is for those who actually are Christians, who actually worship the real God, who actually created the world. This mystery is for those people. And it's this mystery about Christ, it's the truth about who he is, Paul says, That actually makes us godly people, that produces a kind of people who are actually walking with God, who actually know Him. So let me just ask you this morning, if you're a believer, do you want to be godly? I would imagine the answer is like, yeah, I do. I want to follow Christ. I want to walk with Him. I want to be a devoted servant of God. And right here, Paul is saying, if you want to do that, it's produced when you focus all of your attention on this mystery which has been revealed, and that mystery is the person of Jesus the person of Jesus. So for your life this morning, the, the thing that you need most of all, more than anything else, even though there's lots of things you need, I'm sure, the thing that you need most of all is to put your eyes on Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. And as you do that, you're going to grow deeper and deeper and deeper into the kind of person who actually knows the Lord and walks with Him and has the joy of close fellowship with Him. So if we put all this together, and what is this introduction formula? You know, great indeed is the mystery of godliness, what does it say to us? Well, it says that the church confesses together this great mystery that makes them godly, and the mystery is this: Jesus is great. If you only walk you know, out of here with one point from the sermon this morning, Jesus is great. Jesus is great. If we were a band, all of us in this room, the banner flying over us would be Jesus is great. And if we were a radio station, our tagline would be, Jesus is great. And if we were an army, our battle cry would be, Jesus is so, so, so great. He's so great. And so we want to look at this hymn in six lines and just see how it was that the early church, believers in the first century, just years after Jesus died and rose and ascended, how did they conceive of this common confession? What was it about Christ that they believed that transformed their lives so deeply? So I want to walk through this with you, just actually looking at it one line at a time, six lines in a row. There's actually, there's a beautiful symmetry to it. You can look and see some kind of dualities between the physical and the spiritual world that's present in the verses. And the first and the sixth line are connected, and the second and fifth and the middle two lines are connected. And there's all kinds of different ways that whoever wrote this, or whichever group of believers wrote this, really work to just to, to synthesize and to condense and drill down into just six simple lines, a confession of faith about Jesus. And so it's a real gift that they've given to us, this beautiful song. Um, I was on a vacation recently with my family and my brother decided we should all write haikus. We should just try our hand at poetry. Why not? We were on vacation. Guess what? All of our haikus were terrible. They were terrible. None of them were very good, but this is good stuff. This is something that has gone through the the fire of actually being vetted and tested by the church until it's come to us in this six line, six stanza hymn about Jesus. And we're gonna go through it one uh, line at a time, just like a six course meal. Has anybody, you don't have to raise your hand, but have, you know that restaurant, The Hobbit? This is closer to where I am at over in Orange, but there's this restaurant and apparently it's super expensive. Maybe some of you have been there and they serve you these amazing kind of lavish meals, and it's like five, six, seven courses. I've never been there, but that's what this is. That's what this is, a six-course meal, and so we want to walk through it one line at a time, and we'll start with the first line, which says that he, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh. He was manifested in the flesh. Maybe you've had the experience before of watching maybe a scary movie where there's a you know, part where someone jumps out, but because you've seen it already, it doesn't surprise you. And so somebody else in the room jumps, and you know, that's me. I'm the jump scare person. Someone else in the room jumps, but for you, you're, you go, ah, I've seen this before, it doesn't surprise me so much. You know, we're immediately in danger off the bat with this hymn because we've heard the story of Christmas so many times, Jesus coming in the manger, that it's like we're immune to the amazing reality of Christ's incarnation, but that's exactly what this is about. Jesus was manifested in the flesh, and we want to think this morning about just how incredible it is, just briefly, so briefly, that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God, very God, actually came and, and really became man for his people. It's amazing, and so we want to think about that this morning. Um, there was a theologian named Athanasius, who lived in the fourth century, a long time ago, and he wrote the most famous book ever written by a believer outside of the New Testament on the Incarnation. And in the opening lines of that book, he invited the reader in in this way. He said, come now, true lover of Christ, let us follow up the faith of our religion and set forth also what relates to the words becoming man and to his divine appearing among us. Jews belittle it and Greeks laugh it to scorn, but we worship in order that all the more for the seeming lowest state of the word, your piety towards him may be increased and multiplied, mul- multiplied. And that's what we hope for here. That as we think about the incarnation, our devotion towards the Lord would be increased and multiplied because we'll see how amazing it is that He's come and taken human form. So we want to think. Uh, let me just give you two things to think about. First, the humility of His incarnation, and then second, uh, the achievement of His incarnation. So, what what is it about His incarnation that shows His humility? And then, what is it that His incarnation has achieved. So first, his humility. You know, to talk about this, it'd be like trying to explain physics to Albert Einstein How do you do that, you know? Uh, It's such a great thing that we're trying to get our minds around and probably you've already heard a lot of the analogies that people use. Oh, this would be, you know, God becoming man would be like a man becoming an ant. Or, you know, we've heard these these ideas that things can't mix, you know. It's God is spirit and he's so great and so high and so exalted and man is so low that this is like oil and water mixing. Or this is like a house divided. Uh, UCLA and USC both rooted for under the same roof, you know. Well, actually what's going on here is much greater than that, and I want to just have us think about Philippians 2 for a moment, because this captures this more clearly than anything else in all of the New Testament. Philippians 2 verses 5 and 6, you don't have to turn there with me, but you can if you'd like. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a servant. So, Paul says that Jesus, the Son of God, was in the form of God, but when the time came for Him to to complete the plan of redemption that He and the Father and the Spirit had agreed upon before the world was ever made, when that time came, it says He did not reach out and grasp his equality with God and hold on to this idea, hey, I am, I am equal with you, Father, so I, I'm not going to go send someone else It says he didn't do that, and he's so unlike us in this way, you know, I'm not going to clean up that mess. I'm the dad of this house. You clean it up. I'm not going to do this. I, look at my position. Well, Jesus was God in the flesh, and yet he didn't grasp that and leverage it for his own ends. He said, I'm willing I'm willing to empty myself and become nothing and enter this world as a man to go and to do what no one else could do, to die for my people and rise again. It's the most amazing picture of humility. And as believers, this is the, this is the target held out for us by Paul in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves. If you wanna be humble, you have to look at Jesus because he is the ultimate one who has humbled himself from the highest height to the lowest low. And, and second, let's think about what his incarnation has achieved, just quickly. So, Athanasius, in that book I mentioned, he starts with this long history, from the very beginning of the Garden onward, about the, the history of mankind, because he says that if we're going to understand Christ becoming man, we need to see how that fits into the picture of what's happened with mankind, we don't have really time to do that this morning, but just quickly, re- rewind with me, in your mind, back to the Garden of Eden, Okay. God creates the world, he creates through the five days of creation, all these amazing things, and on the sixth day, he creates the the crown jewel of his creation, and that is man and woman created in his image. Man and woman created in his image, and God's plan for the world was that through this man and woman, man and woman, Adam and Eve, and all their descendants, he would exercise his rule and spread his glory from Eden over the whole world. With me on that? Yes. And yet, disaster strikes, almost immediately, because Satan comes, deceives Eve and her and Adam together, sin against the Lord, they're banished from the garden, and in that, all of God's plans for humanity are seemingly shattered. Hebrew, in the Hebrew, it says that man and woman dying you shall die. Basically, you're going to be dead, and it's going to be so bad, it's almost like you're dying as you die. Your whole life state now is that you are under spiritual death. That is, you live in this world without knowledge of God. You have physical death waiting for you. You're going to die someday, and you can't do anything about it, and eternal death looms after that. We don't like to talk about that much, but that's what the Bible says. Physical death, or spiritual death, physical death, eternal death. These are the three greatest problems that face people, and so the the question is what's going to happen with all of this? God can't lower his standards to to just say, "Oh, you sinned, but it's okay. You can come back in to fellowship with me." But then think about this: if God doesn't act and He leaves man in that deadened state, then He admits that His plan for the creation has failed. He's not going to spread His glory over the earth through man and woman. He's not going to rule by a, a image bearer and Satan no less, was the one who thwarted his plan. And so what's going to happen in this? And this is where the beautiful logic of God's plan of redemption becomes apparent to us. God can't stoop down to us because of his holiness. We definitely can't lift ourselves to God because of our sin. And so at the proper time, God says, I will send my own son, the holy one, to be born of a woman into that flesh and to live the life that people like us never could, to die in their place as somebody who had been made just like them, to rise again and in rising, to go through death and out the other side so that everybody who trusts in Jesus, and this is you this morning, if you trust in Jesus, spiritual death is over. You have fellowship with God now. Physical death means nothing to you. Bring it on. I can die and I'm going to immediately be with the Lord and eternal death it's all done away with in Christ. We're not going to be punished eternally for our sin, and the incarnation is what has achieved all of this. God became man in his son, and that is our great hope. If Jesus never became man, we might as well all just go home. There'd be no hope for us. Uh, if there was a, imagine there was a king, and he's in his you know, kingdom, and he gets word that in a certain city, There's a rebellion that's broken out, and scoundrels and sinners have just taken over the city. Well, imagine the king thinks about this problem and realizes there's no one except for me who has the power, the character, the wisdom, the might, and the love to go into that city and reclaim it for myself. Well, what's that king going to do if he's a noble king? When no one else can go, he goes himself, and that's exactly what Jesus has done. He is the king who has no equal, and he's gone himself into this world, taken flesh to do what we could not and redeem his people. He was manifested in the flesh. And the first great truth that the church confesses throughout all time is that God the Son became man. This is the beginning, the entry gate that leads us into life in Christ. He was manifested in the flesh. That's the truth of the incarnation. Let's look at the second line uh, together, and that is that Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. He was vindicated by the Spirit. So, can you think of a time when somebody, maybe a friend or a family member, made a claim so outlandish that you almost immediately felt like you had to ask for more proof? Imagine that before he started leading music this morning, Connor, you know, said, hey, morning, everybody. So glad to be with you. By the way, I just got back from the moon yesterday, and it was awesome. You should totally go sometime. Don't you think that you'd probably say, hey, uh, really, the moon. I'd like a little bit more information, please, sir. I would. I don't know if I'd believe him. And the things that we were just talking about, that God became a man, are in, it's an even greater claim. And so it's understandable that anybody upon hearing this would think, hey, I think I, need some, I think I need some proof of this. And God summons into the courtroom the most expert witness available. It's the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus, he says, was vindicated by the Holy Spirit. And there's lots of touch points where the Holy Spirit is active in Jesus' life. He's active. In bringing him into Mary's womb, uh, Joseph hears from the angel in the first chapter of Matthew that 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 which is conceived in Mary's womb is from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is active at the beginning of Christ's ministry. Remember Christ's baptism, the the heavens tear open, the Father looks down, and the Spirit descends like a dove, the visible sign of the love between the Father and the Father and the son right after that the spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness where he goes and he's tempted by the devil and then as he begins his ministry luke's gospel especially makes it so clear that his preaching and the power in his humanity to do his miracles and and show those signs come from the holy spirit the good maybe you remember this verse the spirit of the lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor it's the spirit that gives spiritual power to his preaching ministry and at times we see that the, Spirit, the power of the Spirit was with him to heal. So the Holy Spirit is active throughout all of Jesus' ministry. But that's not what this verse is really driving at. It says that Jesus was vindicated or proven right or affirmed by the Holy Spirit. We need to ask ourselves what is the ultimate event, more than anything else, that proves as the final stamp of God's yes that Jesus really was who he said he was? And the answer is the resurrection. The resurrection. Listen to Romans, listen to Romans verse 4 of chapter 1. I'll read from the beginning. Paul, a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, there's his humanity, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. When Jesus rose from the dead, it was the Spirit's emphatic declaration. Yes, Jesus is who He said He was. He is who He said He was. And I'm just going to throw this out there. There's no better proof that you're right than being raised from the dead. There's nothing better. If Jesus really rose from the dead, everything He said is true, right? If Jesus really rose from the dead everything that his life represents has the stamp of approval from God. And of course, there's always going to be people who just, who mock the resurrection as a hoax and say, no, I I can't believe that. But, and we're going to talk more about this later in the hymn, but you have to, you have to grapple with this. You have to grapple with the idea that a man died a sinner's death on a cross, and then shortly after that, followers of his turned the world completely upside down. And we'll talk more about that. But possibly, do you think that maybe it might take, you know, more belief, more faith to believe that all of that could have happened as the result of a Messiah who died and stayed dead instead of simply trusting that Christ really was who he said he was and that the Spirit raising him from the dead declared, you can trust this man. Everything he said was true. Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He was vindicated by the Holy Spirit and rose again. Um... If you like, you know, reading kind of kids' books or American literature, maybe you love Tom Sawyer. That was one of my favorite books growing up. And there's a great scene in Tom Sawyer when Tom attends his own funeral. Uh, You know, the the town people think that he's dead, but then as the service is beginning, everybody's crying, he just confidently walks down the aisle with Huck uh, Finn and another friend. And it's just kind of a funny picture. But you know, the New Testament writers were equally confident that if, let's just say somebody out there decided we're gonna have a funeral party for Jesus a week or so after he died, they're equally confident that if he'd, well, if he'd wanted to, Jesus could have walked right into that party because he was raised from the dead. The New Testament writers are utterly convinced of that. And if you're not a believer this morning, I would just, think, I would just say to you, you have to deal with that. You have to deal with that. You can't just leave that question uh, unanswered or undealt with. Uh, third line of the hymn, is that Jesus was seen by angels. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, and seen by angels. So we, we want to ask ourselves, well, why does he mention the angels? This seems kind of obvious. Of course Jesus was seen by angels. And, you know, every Christmas we hear the story of the angels coming to Mary and to Joseph and to the wise men and then to the shepherds in the night sky saying, Jesus is here, glory to God in the highest. Of course, of course Jesus was seen By angels, And throughout his life we see them again in his temptation and then in the Garden of Gethsemane ministering to him. So the angels are seeing what's happening in Jesus' life. But specifically this word has the idea that they were seeing him after his resurrection. They were seeing him after his resurrection. And this is the truth. We've already seen the truth of uh, incarnation and the truth of resurrection. This is the truth of revelation. Revelation. And the reason that Paul mentions, and this hymn mentions, that Jesus was seen by angels is because Jesus's life is of incredible interest to all of God's angels because it manifests the character of God. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter verse, uh, chapter 1 uh, verse 12. It, he says, the gospel was revealed, I'm sorry, it, it was revealed to uh, the prophets that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have been, now been announced to you through those—I'm uh, sorry—through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then he says, "These things are things into which angels long to look. Into which angels long to look. The truths about Jesus, the reality of his life, are things that angels long to look into." And why is it that they long to look into these things? Well, the answer is, angels are not like you and me. Angels are being serving in God's presence, yes, but they're not, they're not people who bear his image. And they, in a way that is, is unlike us, have never actually experienced his grace, his mercy, his compassion, his forgiveness, and his fatherly love. The angels haven't tasted these things. And so when Christ comes onto the scene, his life starts to unfold, they're watching with these hungry eyes, wanting to see what is it that God is doing for his rebellious people, mankind, in this man, Jesus. And they, they, as the life of Jesus progresses, God is revealing his character to the heavenly beings. Ephesians talks about that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It's through the church. It's through what Jesus has done in you that God is putting his glory and power on display for the angels. And just think about this with me for a moment. Because you're a sinner, you actually have more capacity to see the full panoply of God's character than even the mightiest of all his angels, right? They don't know what it is to receive mercy from the Lord or grace. And in your moment of darkest sin, You are actually in the prime position to see his character as really you never could otherwise because it's then, in the moment when you've blown it again and you're just down in the depths of sin that your father, if you're a believer, reaches out to you and says, my child, son or daughter, Christ died for what you've just done. Lift your eyes to him. You can see Jesus again. And we see in that this amazing display of God's love and character. The angels look and see, and are amazed, and worship, because they want to see the character of God, and it's on display in Christ, and I just, you know, sometimes I just imagine, I don't know, it's hard to imagine heaven, right, but can you just imagine what was happening in heaven when the, when Jesus' body that was buried began to breathe again? It must have just been an explosion, like, whoa, Lord, you've sent your son into the world, he's died, and now he's risen again, and the angels understood the new creation has been born. Eternal life has been accomplished. Sin's power has been taken away. Death, where's your victory? Where's your sting? That's all gone away now. Christ Jesus has achieved the victory. It must have just been a party for the ages as the angels in Christ saw what God had accomplished and the hymn writer wants us to see that as a piece of what the church confesses. The angels, too, look at Jesus and what he's done for us as the most full and robust revelation of God's glory. Um, my wife is uh, pregnant right now with our first baby, so that's very exciting. But you know what's really a bummer about that? You're not supposed to eat certain things that she really likes to eat, like sushi. Not fun and sometimes we'll drive past a you know we'll drive past a sushi restaurant and even though we know we can't eat there both of us almost just longingly look you know we just oh man and if we could walk in we'd almost just want to you know peer over that glass counter at the bar to where they're making it and just say oh Oh, I mean, I can eat it, and I have, so <laughs> I can eat sushi, but she hasn't. She's right there, and she's waiting. She's been telling me, I want you to bring me sushi in the hospital. I don't care where, just bring me sushi as soon as this baby is out of me. But, you know, even, she can't enjoy that right now for herself, but she can look, and in seeing that, it just it ignites something, you know, inside And it's the same way with the angels. If you're a foodie, you know, and you're the kind of person who's on Instagram just looking at recipes, that's not me. But if that's you and you just enjoy seeing that and through it you get a window into something and excites you, that's a good picture of how the angels responded to Jesus' life. Lord, the holy angels would say, I'm never going to be a recipient of your fatherly love, of your gracious compassion in the same way that humans are. But I love to see it. I love to see it. And now, you know, we see, maybe you've asked the question, why did God allow Adam and Eve to stumble and sin and rebel against him in the garden? The answer is, he loves to bless us by putting his character on display, right? And if that fall had never happened, and if people had never rebelled against him, then we would only see his, his holiness, his justice, but never his grace and never the depth of love that would send his own son into the world, in our sinful place, to take our punishment upon himself on the cross. We've never seen that expression of God's love. The angels love to see it, and we should too. Three more lines. We want to start to move a little bit more quickly through these now, but the fourth line is that Jesus was proclaimed among the nations. He was proclaimed among the nations, and this fourth line of our hymn has to do with the truth of proclamation. At first glance, it seems a little bit more pedestrian. You know, we've just been talking about him manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, and now proclaimed among the nations. It seems a little bit more straightforward, but it's significant for two reasons. Two reasons. The first is that he's proclaimed to the nations, and the second is that he is proclaimed. So think about the nations for a moment. You know, when Jesus came, we have so little appreciation for this, but when Jesus came, he did something completely new in the history of the world, which was he brought the good news of salvation outside of Israel and through his life, brought that to the entire world. The word here used for nations has the idea of the Gentile nations, people outside of Israel, and we don't want to, it shouldn't be lost on us what what an amazing thing that is. I won't read the verses, but there's places, especially in Colossians and Ephesians, that use the word mystery like we have here, and they specifically connect the mystery of Christ with this mystery, that Jews and Gentiles are now one. Your worst enemy, the person that you dislike most, was, is probably nothing compared to the hostility between a Jewish person and a Gentile person in the first century. But in Christ, Paul says in Ephesians, the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. The gospel has gone to all the nations. And I just, I love to think about this. Here we are, two millennia removed from Jesus' incarnation and then his earthly life and ministry. And, and we're thousands of miles away from Israel. But we're here, you're here you've trusted in the same Jesus. Uh, We are here worshiping a man who lived in Palestine 2,000 years ago, but it's because the gospel has gone to the nations, and I'm so happy about that. You know, we could imagine an unkind dad who comes home, you know, and says, kids, I've got ice cream, but none of it's for you. Well, that'd be pretty sad, right? Thankfully, it's not like that with the gospel. Jesus is the Savior of the world, and there's no restrictions. The gospel goes to all. So it's significant for that reason that Paul says he was proclaimed to the nations. And then, secondly, it's just that he was proclaimed. It's that he was proclaimed. Two amazing things here. Number one, again, we've talked about this already, but it's just mind boggling to think that the frail, weak, troubled, doubting, confused apostles turned into the powerful preachers that they did following Acts chapter 2. The Spirit falls, and in an amazing way, their life just seems to be completely turned upside down, and with new spiritual power, these men who had been completely focused on themselves, almost entirely ignorant of who Jesus really was, become some of those powerful preachers in the history of the church, and I will talk more about this in the next line about belief, but it's just a, yet another confirmation that Jesus really did die and rise, and again, I would just say, if that's not where you're at this morning, if you don't believe that, you just have to, you have to grapple with that. How is it that these people who are with Jesus were transformed into such powerful preachers of the gospel? And then secondly, the, the idea that he's proclaimed is significant for us because it just reminds us once again, you know what? Preaching matters. Preaching is God's choice for how Christ is going to go to the nations. And it's incredible to me. You know, we're a great example of this this morning here we are, a group of people, and the Lord of heaven and earth is choosing to speak, you know, from his word to us, but through my lips. I'm just a dude, you know, I'm just a guy. Pastor Craig is awesome, I love him, but we're just guys, you know, every preacher is, but this is how God has chosen to bring things forward, has chosen to advance the gospel, and maybe the world looks at us, people are probably driving by the church right now, maybe not noticing, but if they did, maybe they'd think, huh, Those Christians meet every Sunday to hear someone climb up there and give a message from an old book that's so antiquated, so outmoded, so old fashioned. Why would anyone bother? And the reason why we bother is because this is God's plan. He's chosen the foolishness of preaching, the foolishness of preaching even sometimes poor preaching, weak preaching, not the best preaching, to bring the message of Christ forward. Jesus was proclaimed among the nations, and that's the truth of proclamation. The fifth truth is closely connected to this one. Uh, You know, it's that he was believed on in the world, and this fifth truth is the truth of transformation. It's that Jesus actually transformed people when they heard the preaching of the word. Um, it, maybe you've seen the movie Pirates of the Caribbean. Great movie, great you know main character Captain Jack Sparrow. And there's a moment when he's detained by the admirable the admirable okay I can't speak admiral of the British Navy in the scene. And you know this man says to him in a snarky English accent, "You are without doubt the worst pirate I've ever heard of." To which Jack Sparrow responds, "Ah, but you have heard of me." You have heard of me. And it's kind of like a gotcha moment. Well, guess what? This fifth line, when it says that Jesus was believed on the nations, it's saying, you know what? The the proclamation of the gospel to the nations that was happening, it actually worked. They heard about Jesus, and then amazingly, some actually believed and just quickly here, think about Peter. He's this man who's just, uh, just denied Jesus and been restored to ministry. He's in Jerusalem, Acts 2 happens, the Spirit comes down, and he finds himself climbing up to some position of prominence and preaching this powerful sermon to a group of thousands of Jewish proselytes. And amazingly, I, just, I imagine he must have been so surprised. Suddenly, tens, hundreds, thousands of people hear the message of Jesus, and they say, we're cut to the heart. We believe. How do you explain that except for the power of the Holy Spirit? And it's the same all throughout the New Testament. Think of Paul's joy as he went to Corinth, a city in the ancient world that was basically like the Las Vegas of the ancient Near East, known for unbelievable sensuality and wickedness. And he goes there and he starts to talk to people about Jesus, the Lord of all. And amazingly, they believe. They believe. People that he interacts with, who believe, go back to their towns, Epaphras, to Colossae, and They hear the message of Christ and believe the church in Thessalonica is a signal flare across all of the the land of ancient Greece, Macedonia and Achaia, and to the ends of the earth. Christ is Lord, and people are believing the message. Jesus turned the world upside down. Turned the world upside down, and we still are the beneficiaries of this gospel going forward being proclaimed among the nations, and by God's grace, and it is by God's grace that this is you this morning, we believe, we believe in Christ, and we know firsthand his transforming power. Final line, the hymn ends exactly really where it should. It's so fitting. It's that he was taken up in glory, and this is the truth of exaltation, the truth of exaltation. Shortly here, we can basically just say, you know, or ask the question, when when Jesus died and rose and then ascended after 40 days or so of appearing to people, where did he go? And obviously the answer is, well, he went to heaven. We know that, but does the New Testament tell us anything more? And it does. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, the author of Hebrews says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool under his feet. And the idea is just this. Jesus came to earth, was manifest in the flesh, and he actually Rose triumphant, having accomplished the task that he was sent to, so much so that when he ascended, he sat down at the Father's right hand, sitting because the work is finished, and at the Father's right hand because this is the position of supreme authority in all of the universe. You like to have friends in high places? Are you the kind of person who knows a guy? Oh, I know a guy for that. Oh, I know a guy for that. You have a friend in a high place. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, seated because he's accomplished the work that he was sent from the Father to do on earth and he rules. Philippians chapter 2 is so clear. Therefore God has highly exalted, on, exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's the glory of God the Father. Our Savior was made so low and humbled himself in coming, but now he is exalted. And some of us confess him as Lord. Now all of us will someday confess him as Lord when he comes again. Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's the ultimate King of everything. And the hymn goes all the way from his manifestation in the flesh through to his exaltation, his being taken up in glory. This is the Christ we believe in. Six lines, six truths about Christ. It's a beautiful summary of the church's Christology in one hymn incarnation, resurrection, revelation, proclamation, transformation, exaltation. This is the Christ we worship. This is the Christ we love. And this is the church's great confession, the mystery of of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh and that manifestation has been confirmed in every way we could have ever asked for. It is confirmed by the Holy Spirit raising him from the dead and vindicating his life. It is confirmed by the angels who saw and worshiped as they saw the character of God revealed. It is confirmed by the proclamation of the disciples who were formerly fearful but had now been transformed by the Lord. It is confirmed by the belief of the church and the belief in our hearts And someday it will finally be confirmed once and for all when the exalted Christ who is taken up in glory comes again and returns. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord. And as we close this morning, I just wanna offer thoughts to just two groups of people. Number one, maybe you're hurting this morning. I'm obviously not in this body of believers, so I don't know all the details, but maybe you're in a lot of pain this morning. And I just wanna say all these truths about Christ They don't numb the pain, of course, right? The pain is there, it's real. But what they do give you is ballast for your boat. The truth about Christ is what you need to get you through 10, 20, 40, 80 years of suffering in this life. We need Christ. This Jesus, who was manifested, vindicated, seen, proclaimed, believed, and taken up, he loves you. He cares about you. He is by the Father's right hand interceding for you. And he will take you home one day. He loves you man, this is good truth for our souls. And then secondly, if you're the kind of person who's here and you say, I really want to grow in the Lord. I want to grow in godliness. then let me just remind you that Paul says, this is the mystery of godliness. This truth about Christ is what produces godly people. And so if you want to walk closely with the Lord, you need to, as much as you can by God's grace, commit yourself maybe again this morning to say, I just want to Try to look away from these distractions and back to Christ. I want Him on the big screen of my life. I want it to be like that stone in Daniel's vision that fills all of the sky until it takes up all of heaven. I want Christ. To, I just want Him. I want Christ to just fill up my whole life. The more I see of Christ, the more godly I'll be. And there's an encouragement to you for that. If you are in Christ, the more your eyes are fixed on Him the more the Holy Spirit will be working in you, transforming you from one degree of glory to the next, becoming more and more like Christ as you worship our triune God, and that will happen all the way until someday we are glorified with him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for these, these six lines, this uh, simple hymn but deeply profound, and we just we praise you this morning for the way that it opens our eyes to see the glory of Jesus. Um, Lord, we confess that in so many ways we fall short of your glory, we sin against you, we're rebellious in our hearts, and so we praise you that you sent your son at the right time to be manifested in flesh for us, that he actually came to die in our place and rise again, and all of creation now revolves around Christ. Lord, we know that right now you hear our prayer because of Christ. And so we want to just ask that you would continue to exalt him in our hearts. Would you enthrone him? Would our lives be more fully submitted to him? And again, Lord, we pray that if there are those in the the room this morning who don't know Christ, that by your grace, you would open their eyes to see his glory. Lord, we love you, and we thank you so much for this time together in your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.